Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. As we start today, I want you to think about some of the great mountain ranges of the world and how so often the great mountain ranges of the world end up producing some of the greatest rivers of the world. Think, for instance, of the Rocky Mountains, which are mostly found in Colorado, and how all of the massive peaks that are there in Colorado during the wintertime, how they collect the snow And then as the winter turns to spring and then summer, the snow begins to melt and a mighty river through many tributaries and all of that, eventually a mighty river is formed. And we know it as the Colorado River and it flows through many states, brings water to millions of people and thousands of acres of farmland and flows all the way down into Mexico. I wanted to point that out or bring that image into your mind because to me in the passage in front of us today, John thought of God like a great mountain from which life flows. He is the source of life. Love and light and truth and righteousness all flow from God. And today what we're going to see is that God is the ultimate source of two things. He's the ultimate source of truth, number one, And he's the ultimate source of love, number two. Truth, because he cannot lie. It's not in his nature to do so. Everything that he says is true. And love, because he cannot hate. Every activity of God is filtered through who he is because God is love. He is the origin, the definition of both truth and love. And rather than have truth at odds with love, God is the perfect combination of both. He reveals that he is wonderfully loving, but his love is never absent of the truth. And he is the perfect source of both. And that leads us to really the two main points of the passage today. The first point that John is going to make in verse one through six is is this, that because God is the originator of truth, we should test the messages we hear throughout life. Every message that comes across our eyes or our ears, we should test those messages by God. And secondly, since God is the originator of love, John will again in this passage tell us that we should be a people who love one another. So really right there, you've got the whole sermon, the whole outline, the whole everything that John is gonna try to get us to do today. He's gonna tell us to test what we hear and love each other. All right, so let's look into the passage to see how he applies that or how he breaks that down in our lives. So the first thing, number one, test the messages you hear. Verse one through six. Let's start out reading in verse one, though, to see the theme statement. John says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. We already read this. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is, as I said, John's main exhortation. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So don't believe all the spirits and test the spirits, which brings up a question. What does he mean when he says the spirits? Test the spirits. Don't believe the spirits. What does he mean when he says to test them? 
Well, notice that John goes on to say in verse 1, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So it seems that for John, a spirit, what's behind it is a message or a messenger, but what's behind the message or the messenger is a spirit that is driving that message or that messenger. And John announces to us that many of these false messages and false messengers have already, he says in verse one, launched out into the world. And so because of that, John has a simple exhortation. We should test the spirits, he said. Test the messages that we hear. We should not believe everything that presents itself as coming from God. We're to have discerning minds. Now, there's a good example of this from the ministry of Paul the Apostle in the book of Acts. There was a time where Paul, in traveling to various places throughout Europe, went to the city of Thessalonica. And when he got there, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue where there'd be a collection of Jewish people who said they believed the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul would take the Old Testament scriptures and explain to them how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and promises that had been made in the Old Testament era. But in Thessalonica, the Jewish people did not want to hear Paul's message. They heard what he was saying, they heard the scriptures, they heard the quotations, but they didn't want to search it out. And so they began to persecute Paul for that message and eventually chased him and some of his companions out of town to the south to a smaller town called Berea. And there in Berea, Luke records this. He says, now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica in Berea because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And our heart should be that we want to be like the Berean people. People who say, when I hear a message, I'm going to search the scriptures to see if the thing that I'm hearing or that's being preached to me is actually accurate. I will not blindly receive the message I hear, but test it up and against the word of God. But before we think about the tests that we can use to make sure a message is really from God, there's an exhortation that John gives to us in verse one before he says to test the spirit. Look at it in verse one. What comes before testing the spirit? He says, do not believe every spirit. I hope that you understand this because when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a believer, but also you become an unbeliever. Because you believe in Jesus, there will be things that you are required not to believe that are being preached to you. In the same way that you inhale air and exhale air, if you're going to be a believer, then there will be some things that you say, I no longer receive, I no longer believe. You love righteousness, therefore you become a hater of sin. You follow good, therefore you come to reject evil. And when you believe in God and his gospel, there is much that you cease to believe. Other translations say it like this, don't believe everything you hear, or don't believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. One of the things John is saying is, look, your first posture when considering a new message is, look, I'm not going to believe it until I know that it lines up with the Word of God. 
Now believe you, be, believe me, the last thing that I want to encourage this morning from 1 John 4, 1 through 6, is some kind of paranoid or hostile group of Christians. Perhaps you've seen this kind of closed-minded Christian group. Their network or their denomination or their camp is seen as the only true camp, and no one who's inside the body of Christ but outside of their camp is allowed to come and speak with them or share with them because they're paranoid that some kind of false doctrine is gonna come in through these very solid teachers that could help them. They become, in camps like these, rigid about secondary and tertiary matters in the Bible and paranoid about other believers. And what happens in groups like these is that a hypercritical spirit just ruins everything because everyone in it is afraid to say or do something that the group does not accept. So that's the last thing that I'm trying to cultivate here from 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. But what I would like to promote is a more discerning view about the different messages that come our way in life. You know, when I was a little boy, I was convinced that there were three main enemies that were out to get me. You know, the first one was drugs. I mean, that was a big one. They brought D.A.R.E. to, to our campus when I was in elementary school, and they, I was in the era where they showed the commercials, this is your brain holding up an egg and then cracking it, frying it on the Skittle. This is your brain on drugs. So that was a big one. You know, say no to drugs. That was the big number one enemy. And then number two, kidnappers, for sure. They were out there. I knew that they wanted to get me, and it was like, you know, don't talk to strangers. And so if you try to pet my dog or ask me the time, for sure you were a kidnapper, you know? <laughs> and so that was the second one. And the third one, based on all the cartoons that I watched when I was a kid, was quicksand. That was the other big <laughs> enemy. So I'd walk through the forests in Pacific Grove, and it was like, look, quicksand is not going to get, that might be quicksand. Let's just go around it. You don't want to end up like Bugs Bunny or whatever, you know? So, you know, I was paranoid about all three of these things. Look, I, I know that it's ridiculous to tell a little story like that, but what's the message with all of those? Watch out, be discerning. Not everyone or everything that looks friendly is so. Have a critical eye about the truth that is being announced to you. And I think we could use this more discerning, critical eye when it comes to the messages that we as Christians interact with each day. We have to test them. We should not immediately believe them. When, when we're in the classroom, we should consider the things being taught to us. Is this really from the Lord? Is there another spirit that's operating here to try to get me to think about things in a certain way, in a godless kind of way? When other Christians are saying what they think and what they believe, is there an ability to compare their words with the Bible itself? From the pulpit, when the word is being taught or sermons are being delivered, am I able to compare it and contrast it with scripture? When I'm online and I'm surfing through different feeds that I subscribe to, or when the thoughts of my own mind rise up and I think this sounds like something God would say, can I test those spirits? Can I see if they're really from the Lord? But how can we test these spirits to see whether they're from God? How can we tell if the false prophets, who they are and, and, and where they've gone into the world? Well, John is gonna give us three questions in verse two through six. Question number one is this. Are they allegiant to Jesus? 
Are they allegiant to Jesus? He says in verse two and three, he says, by this you know the spirit of God. This is what God is gonna do. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Okay, here what John is doing is highlighting the confession of the false teachers from his era. The false teachers floating around at that time in the early church in John's era were saying that Jesus was just there in spirit, that Jesus had not come in flesh and bones, that he had not come in body. That's why John says that the messengers that have the spirit, they're going to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And everyone who said that he didn't, well, then they weren't messengers from God, John said in verse three. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Now, it's not just that the spirit of Antichrist is the spirit that denies the incarnation. That's part of the spirit of Antichrist, but the spirit of Antichrist in general twists and manipulates your thinking about the identity of who Jesus is. Here, what John is saying is that a confession, they're, they're confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is not just intellectual belief. There are plenty of people who aren't believers, who preach all kinds of crazy things, who believe that Jesus physically walked on the earth. Uh, and you could go and convince somebody, hey, Jesus is a historical figure. He's not just a fairy tale. We have many records about his life. He definitely and certainly existed. And no serious historian today would deny the reality that Jesus Christ lived on earth, even if they're denying uh, the cross of Christ and the gospel itself. So John isn't talking about mere intellectual belief that Jesus walked on the earth. What he's talking about is a confession. A confession surrenders to Jesus. A confession lives the life. The confessor submits their life to Jesus Christ. Paul said it like this, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse three, he said, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, what John and Paul don't think is that you could never go to someone and say, hey, here's a million dollars. Could you say the words, Jesus is Lord? Anybody off the street could say those words, but what Paul and John mean is that no one can say them legitimately from the heart with sincerity unless the Spirit of God is working in their lives, saying, he is my Lord. He's the one that I submit to. He's the one that I'm going to follow in life. But not only is this a confession saying he's my Lord, it's also a confession saying that Jesus came. That's what he says in verse two, which implies that he came from somewhere. He wasn't merely born like the rest of us, but the scripture tells us he came from eternity and then was born like the rest of us. He is God who became flesh for you and me. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, fully divine, took on the fullness of humanity. But the spirit of Antichrist loves to lead people away from the truth about Jesus. That's why this first question is, are they allegiant to Jesus? The real Jesus, the true Jesus. You see, a lot of theories about Jesus abound. And many of the religions of the world have a theory as to the identity of Christ. 
but none of them are scriptural. And even by John's day, a false message about Jesus was already circulating throughout the world at that time. They were twisting the identity of who Jesus is. It was out of step with scripture. This still occurs, and John tells us that we must beware. Part of being beware or on guard is to simply acknowledge that false teaching, it exists. This will help us to be alert, to know that it's all around us, that competing truth claims are present. This is nothing new. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. So it makes sense that lies are being promoted in the world around us, tempting to, attempt, attempting to get us off of who Jesus is. Jesus braced us for these false messages and messengers by saying things like this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And Peter and others backed up Jesus' words with words like these. But false prophets also arose among the people back in the Old Testament era. But, it, but just, as there will be, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So we have to know that false teaching, error, it's out there. Messages and messengers that are against the Lord, they exist. We have to be aware. And when we scroll Instagram or we read the latest headlines or we listen to the most popular podcasts, we have to be aware that the great deceiver is out there trying to manipulate our minds, trying to lie to us, trying to get us off, listen to me now, off of the kingdom and onto something else. We have to be on guard. So the first question, are they allegiant to Jesus? Here's the second question. Are they of the world? Are they of the world? He says in verse four and five, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Okay, the second test that John holds out to help us determine whether a message is from the Lord or not has to do with the audience that receives the message primarily, the world, and the origin, origination of the message, that it also comes from the world. If the messenger comes from the world in John's mind, then it's a false messenger, and if the world system listens to the message, then again, it's a false messenger. And John feels like this is a shame because he looks at the church that he was serving and ministering to, and he knew that they had overcome the world. He said, look, God is in you. Greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. You don't need to listen to this nonsense because the spirit of God has given you victory over the world itself. Apparently all the false teachers around in John's day hadn't been able to completely overturn the church that John was serving and ministering to. The spirit lived in them and helped them stand up against this false teaching. But notice how John thinks false teaching could be known. He says in verse five, the world listens to them. This helps us understand something very important. Listen to me right now. This helps us understand that popularity and praise and widespread reception of a message are not the best measures of a message's legitimacy. Truth claims are not a democracy. 
The highest vote getter does not get to win. So we can assume that many popular messages that are anti-Christ in nature are going to be widely received because they come from the world and are being preached to the world. And just because the world goes along with their message doesn't mean that it's true. In fact, a message's popularity might help demonstrate how demonic and worldly it is in the first place. So often these worldly messengers, they're just preaching worldly solutions. They come from the world, they're preaching to the world, they're drawing your attention more and more to the world and its world system. But messengers from the Lord, they draw your attention upward to the Lord, to Christ, to his gospel. But the message of Christ on this side of eternity, we know that it will never be the predominant view. It won't be the majority view. It won't receive worldwide praise and acclaim. And often it will get you outcast. Listen to what Jesus said about it in Matthew chapter 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So the second question, are they of the world. Well, what's question number three? It's this. Do they hear the apostles? Do they hear the apostles? Look at verse six with me, would you? It says, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And when John says this in verse six, he's alluding to something he's already introduced in the introduction to 1 John. You guys remember my first teaching in 1 John, 1 John chapter one, verse one through four? You remember it, right? Okay. In that first section, John said this in verse three. He said, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. The we that John referred to there and refers to here in 1 John 4, verse 6, is the apostolic group. This is the only way that this verse makes sense. I could never say this. We, Nate, is from God. Whoever knows God listens to Nate. That's not the way it works. It's the apostles were from the Lord. Whoever listens to them uh, listens to God. So the question is simple. Do they hear the apostles? That's how we know, verse six, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So how does someone hear the apostles? By adhering to the word of the apostles. And what's the word of the apostles? Well, they preached the Old Testament, believed the Old Testament, and then they wrote and preached the doctrines of the New Testament. So the apostles and what they said is the Bible itself. They communicated the Old Testament word of God and wrote the New Testament word of God. So to hear them is to hear scripture. Jesus said in John 8, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why he said to that audience, you do not hear them, is that you are not of God. All right, so error is out there, John is telling us. But what he's saying is that our knowledge of the word can help us be guarded against the spirit of error. And the more you know the word, the more protected you are. 
As an example of this, you know, I'm a, I'm a big baseball fan. I love baseball. I have my favorite team and all that, but I just love the game. I played it when I was younger. I've read a lot about it. I've watched probably way too much of it. And, you know, I just really like the game. And sometimes people will say, you know, well, baseball, like, it's so boring. There's hardly any action at all. And if you're a real baseball fan like I am, your response is usually, well, that just means you don't understand the game. You don't understand what you're watching. It's our real pompous way of talking down to non-baseball fans. (laughs) But because I've spent time reading about it, thinking about it, being entertained by it, I understand more of the intricacies of the game than the average person. And because of my working understanding of the game, if I'm sitting there on the couch with my wife and my three daughters and we're watching a game together, and one of the players on the screen makes an obvious error, usually they can detect it. Oh, that doesn't look like he did the right thing. But when a player makes a less than obvious mistake. It might be something that I'm able to see, but they have no idea what they're watching because they're not as familiar with the game as I am. Same thing with the word of God. The more you understand, the more you know, the more word you put into your mind and in your heart, the more you familiarize yourself with the word, it's easier for you to notice error. You start seeing it when, it's, when it happens, not just the obvious stuff, but the less than obvious stuff as well. And I want to help you with this. So at the end of my notes that I put online at my, on my blog at nateholdridge.com, I wrote out a bunch of free or almost free inexpensive resources for you to help you build up your library of different things you can lean on to help you understand the word of God. I was going to share with them with you right now in the message, but it would just be really boring for me to read off websites to you. So just go there online. I just didn't want to be up here like HTTPS colon slash slash www dot. So I just thought I put them all in there for you and I'll talk about some of them at the end of the teaching, but you need to have a way to build up your understanding of God's word. Okay, that's the first part of the passage that we should test the messages we hear. But the second thing John says to wrap this up is that we should love one another in verse seven through 12. So let's look at that briefly together. He says in verse seven, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, once again, John takes us back to one of his main themes, that we should love one another. You know when Paul writes letters, you know, in in the New Testament, he's got his logic, his doctrine, his teaching, he just lays it out in such an orderly fashion, and then he moves on from it and begins to apply it at the end of his letters. He's just real structured in the way that he writes, very linear in his arguments. But John is not like that. John is strategically, systematically uh, circular or spiraling in the way that he communicates truth. He says it, then comes back to it on a deeper level. And now in this passage, he's on this theme of loving each other on the deepest, in the deepest way that he could communicate. We're gonna look a little bit at it today and then also next week because it's such a dense passage about loving each other because of who God is. And in the previous passages, this is what John told us. First he said, 
God is light, so we should love each other because he's light. And if we're walking in the light and not in darkness, then we should be like him and love each other. Then secondly, he said, and God, when you become a Christian, puts his nature inside of you. So we should love each other because if his nature is inside of us, then we should love each other. But here, John is going to combine uh, both of these statements. He's going to take the reality of who God is and what our nature is and smush them together and say uh, that love is from God since God is love, so we should be loving our fellow brother and sister in Christ. And the reason I wanted to say that to you is because part of the reason that John felt compelled to always be talking to us about loving one another is that he was just constantly thinking about God. He'd come to know some things about God. Love is from God, he said in verse seven. God is love, he said in verse eight. So for John, to know God means that you know love. That's what your experience is. Without God, he thinks, a person cannot know the truest definition of what love is. So when John says that God is love, in verse eight, he means that God's every activity is filtered through love. He can't do anything that is unloving. It's his very nature. He is love. Love is from him. You see, love is not just one of the things that God does from time to time, but it's his every activity. It's just who he is. It defines who he is. It de he defines the substance of what love is. He is love. So John will explain what he means by God's love in a moment, but before we move on, notice how John thinks. He says, verse seven, people who have been born of God and know God will love. And people who do not love do not know God. This means that at the very least, they're out of fellowship with God. They're not hanging out with him, so they're not practicing the love that he wants them to practice. Or at the worst, they've never been born of him in the first place. They're not born again. Remember I talked to you about those mountains? The idea here is that John, he's gone to the mountain that is God. He's experienced who God is, and he's seen that this love has flown, uh, flowed from, from God himself. And the believer who has been born of and has known God, has experienced God, will demonstrate his love because of the interaction with God that they've experienced. And when I was in high school, I don't know if they still do it this way or not, but I went to Pacific Grove High School. And uh, when a sports team was good enough, you know, won enough games or whatever, then they would qualify for the playoffs. And it was the Central Coast playoffs, so the CCS playoffs. And you would go and you'd play. And, and if you won the whole thing or if you just lost the first game, it didn't matter. Every single athlete got a T-shirt. It was the CCS playoffs. So basketball, you got the 1995 CCS basketball playoffs t-shirt. And you would cherish that t-shirt. It was a real badge of honor, you know. And the, and the big thing that you would do with that t-shirt is the next season, if you were still there, you know, the new younger players would come up and you would wear that CCS playoff t-shirt around those younger players. It was a way for you to communicate to them, this is where we went last year and you haven't gone there yet, but we went there and we want to go there again. So we're going to need your help if we're going to get to that place that we'd like to go. It was a way to communicate, this is who we are, this is what we've experienced. And for John, 
it seems that love for a Christian, when they love other people, it's one way for them to testify, I've experienced God. I've known God. I've interacted with God. And because he is love and love comes from him and he's poured it into my heart, I want to love the people around me. Let's move on in the passage, though, and see a definition of what God does because he's love. It's one thing to say that God is love, but I've heard many people quote 1 John 4, verse 8, God is love, as a way to uh, permit some activity in their lives that is, uh, you know, they say, well, God doesn't care because, you know, God is love after all. But let's see what God does because he is love. Verse 9. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John has already told us here that love is that God is love, is love and that love comes from him. But here he details it. He says, this is what God did. He sent, verse nine, his only son into the world. In other words, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, was evidence of God's love. Why did Jesus come? Why did he take on human flesh? Because of his love for us. You see, if there's no incarnation, then how can God actually love us? How can God actually practically, experientially love us? Without the incarnation, you know what Christianity is? It's just another one of the religions of the world. Because the religions of the world teach that we should try to attain to divinity. And without the incarnation, that's what Jesus's life would be. A life where he didn't be it's not God becoming flesh, but just a man trying to be so good that he can get to God and show others the way to try to emulate divinity like himself. But Jesus wasn't trying to earn divinity. He was already divine. His story is not one of man reaching up to God, but the story of God reaching down for us. John Stott said it better than I could say it, so I have a long quotation for you from his book, The Cross of Christ. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to that pain? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us, and our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. 
That's the God that we serve. That's the Lord that we love, the one who loved us so much that he decided to embrace our pain for us by going to the cross. Okay, but Jesus didn't come to merely experience humanity. What John Stott is saying is that he came to die. That's why John says in verse 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, the word propitiation is a big Bible word. It comes up a few times in the New Testament. We actually saw it all the way back in 1 John chapter 2. You guys remember that? Just nod your head like, yeah, for sure. And when we were there, I explained it to you. It's a word that means that God's wrath and need for justice was satisfied in the cross of Jesus Christ. That though we were enemies, we can now be friends and family with God because of Jesus satisfying God's thirst and need for justice. John's point here, though, isn't to get into a dialogue about the meaning of propitiation. What what his point is, is this. Because God loved, it brought him to a place where that's what he did. His love drove him to that place. In other words, the cross was the natural outflow of God's love and holiness and justice. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, remember those science projects where some kids would build a fake volcano? Remember those, those science projects? I always wanted to build one so I could remember them like, when I, like crazy. You know, I always wanted my parents to help me. It was very obvious that dads built the paper mache volcano. My dad did not want to help me with my science projects at all. I was on my own. So I was more of a like, what is the plant going to grow better with? 7-Up or Sprite or water? That was kind of my jam. Did that probably seven times. But I always wanted to do one of those volcano things, you know, build a paper mache volcano, make it look all cool, put some villagers in there and stuff. And then, you know, you, you, I guess you, you build it around a two liter and you put some ingredients in the two liter. And one of the things you put in is vinegar and then baking soda. And those ingredients, when they intermix, they begin to bubble forth and it makes this little cool fake lava presentation. Well, the idea here in this passage is that God's love and God's holiness intermixed. And what bubbled forth was the cross. In other words, when you look to the cross of Jesus, what you're seeing is the perfect outflow of God's nature, just who he is. So John is saying, because God is who he is, this action occurred. All right, with that in mind, we need to go to verse 11 and 12 and wrap this up. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So John's conclusion here is real simple. It's this. If God loved us like that, if that's what he did, then we should love each other. If we've gone up to his mountain, we've seen who he is, we've seen his glory, we've seen his love, we've been impacted by it and have received it, then we should love others. And the cool thing about these two verses is in verse 12. Notice John says, no one has ever seen God. What that means is no one has ever in human flesh seen God in the full totality of his magnificence and glory. Of course, when Jesus walked on the earth, they were seeing God the Son, but there was a veil put over the fullness of his deity. So no one has seen the fullness of who God is. John says that. He says no one's ever seen God. But here's the beautiful thing. He says, if we love one another, 
God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is John's way of saying an amazing thing. Though people cannot see God in the fullness of his glory, if we love one another, it will be a way in which they can see God because God is love. When his love is perfected in us and it plays out through our lives, the circuit of God's love is complete and people can get to know the Lord. This is the way it works. God's love is there. It's who he is. It flows from him into the cross. We then believe in Jesus and become recipients of his love. But we are not the end. We are not the cul-de-sac of God's love. It is to then flow through us to others. And when it does, people have a chance to see who God is. Think of it like this. In your house, you have all kinds of light switches, all kinds of lights all throughout your home. And as long as the light switch is in the off position, the electrons cannot run their full course. Therefore, no light. But when the light switch is put in the on position, the electrons do their thing and the light begins to shine. The circuit of electricity is completed when the switch is in the on position. John is looking at Christians and he's saying, get your love in the on position. Because when it's in the on position, people can begin to see the full circuit of God's love and therefore God who cannot be seen, who has never been seen, gets a little bit of evidence through the life that you are living. So I hope we've seen today that God is the origin of truth. He's the origin of love and how beautiful we can be a people who abide in both. So before I let you go, let me give you a handful of applications to help you maybe bring this home uh, in your life. Okay, the first one, this is real basic. This is a real simple one. You know, we're talking about the spirit of truth, the spirit of error, that people who have the spirit of truth they're connected to the apostles and their words. So this is a real, this took a lot of thought for me to come up with this first one for you guys. Number one, read your Bible. Okay, <laughs> read your Bible. If that's, if this is like the big important thing, you know, this is how you can discern truth from error, then you've got to get into the word of God. Time with the genuine article will help you see counterfeits. Okay, secondly, I say this one, this might be for some of you, get a study Bible. Get a study Bible. Now, I don't want to communicate by this that I think that you can't understand the Bible by yourself. Sometimes Christians think this. Like, okay, I can't know the Bible. There's no way I could know the Bible. Some people will come up to me after I teach like a study in 1 John and say like, you know, you read the passage and I'm like, wow, that's neat. And then you teach it and I'm like, I had no idea that's what it was talking about or that's what it was saying. As, and, and then the, the application is, I don't think that I could know the Bible. But here's the thing. I often tell Christians, concentrate on what's clear to you in the Bible. I guarantee you, if you went home and had never heard me teach 1 John, and you read 1 John 1 through 5, you would come away with the exhortation, I should love other Christians. I mean, he just says it over and over again. Concentrate on what you know in the Bible. But there are times where it's helpful to have a little aid to give you some background or some definitions. And so a good study Bible will help you with that. And I recommend the English Standard Version Study Bible. It's a great one. Uh, and I put a link to it, uh, like I said earlier, online. So you might need to get yourself a study Bible. It's really cool. It'll just give you the verses on the top half of the page and then some very brief explanations on the bottom half of the page. And so it'll help you as you're reading through the Word. 
then you might want to go a little further than just having a study Bible. So number three, I'd say purchase a decent commentary. Purchase a decent commentary. I've recommended one that I think is very accessible and really solid uh, online, but a good commentary through the whole Bible, it will just follow the flow of the Bible. So you're in Genesis chapter five, you turn to Genesis chapter five in the commentary, and you can see some more scholarly explanations of what you're dealing with uh, right there in that passage. And obviously some of them are way intense, and I wouldn't recommend them to somebody brand new to a Bible commentary, but the one I put in is solid and good, and I'm helped by it myself and would encourage you to pick one up uh, yourself. I don't think there's like a Black Friday sale or anything like that on the one that I recommend, but maybe a good Christmas present for you. Number four, grab some recommended resources, and I've got a it looks like maybe 15 different free websites that you can go to that will help you in your understanding of the word. Some of them are free Bible commentaries. Some of them just have great articles about scripture. And uh, some of them are videos that you can watch on YouTube. For those of you who are like, man, you're kind of recommending a lot of reading right now. Well, there's some cartoons that you can also watch that'll <laughs> help you learn about the Bible. But my encouragement to you is like, don't just know about these resources. Utilize them. Sign up for their email list. They work hard to produce that material. So sign up for their email list. Take time to read their stuff. It'll make you more solid to help you prepare for error that's going to come. And then number five, I've given this exhortation before, but I, I think nobody listened to me the first time. So I'm going to give it again. Read healthy and widely regarded systematic theologies. Okay, I've recommended three of them online. They're a good resource to just have. Say somebody comes into your life and says, I don't think the Bible teaches that Jesus is uh, divine. I don't believe that. Well, you might be scrambling a little bit, like, well, I know there's this verse and that verse, and maybe you've got a handful of scriptures in your mind, but a good systematic theology, you can go to the section on the divinity of Christ, and you can be reminded of a robust historical Christian argument for the divinity of Jesus is just an example. So I'd encourage you to get one of those, have that on your shelf. And if you like to read through it from cover to cover, I think it's a really fun thing to do. So number six, <clears throat> moving on to the love section, refuse to see God's love as a doctrine for soft Christians. Like I realize that there are whole church movements that it's like that's the only message you're ever gonna hear is that God loves you, you know, and you're okay as you are, you know, and stuff like that. And we all walk out going, I'm okay, you're okay, and we just hug each other or whatever. And so it can lend us to, to, to lead us to have this feeling that the doctrine of the love of God is a weak doctrine. No, it's just made weak by people who frame it in those ways. But the doctrine of the love of God will make you into a strong person who lays down your life and sacrifices for others. So when you're hearing about the love of God, don't tell yourself, that's, that's a weak doctrine, you know, it's just kind of placating the human need for affirmation or something like that. That's not, that's not it at all. We need the love of God to be who we are. So don't see it as a weak doctrine. And number seven, have other Christians over for meals. When, when you get together with other Christians, you know, and just kind of talk with them. It's just a great experience. You know, you, one great question is, how did you come to know Jesus? That's just really a fun question to ask, especially when you're with someone who's been in Christ for a long time, because it's easy to imagine that there was never a moment they weren't a Christian. And then they start telling you their testimony, and you're like, what? You were terrible, you know? <laughs> And there's just something encouraging about that, you know, to just be reminded like, oh yeah, this is where we all came from. But 
being with other Christians, you just get a chance to love each other, encourage each other. And then number eight, lastly, spend time in God's presence. You know, if going to the mountain who is God to learn that God is love and love is from God, if that produces an outflow of love from our lives, then we cannot neglect time with the Lord. When we spend time with him, we're spending time with God who is love, and that is bound to impact the way that we treat other people and our effectiveness here on earth. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.